Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Joining me in just a moment will be Dr. Adriana Stacy. She's a board-certified psychiatrist. She's also a partner and a medical advisor with ScreenStrong.com. We're going to be talking today about postpartum depression. It's a topic not covered often enough, but I think is at the heart of this crisis in our culture regarding abortion and helping women to bond with their children, to love and accept their children in the face of the mental health crises we're experiencing today. We're also going to talk about what's happening with the social media crackdown, lawsuits against TikTok, and Utah banning minors from social media. It's interesting to see how government is stepping in in a certain respect, filling the role that parents should actually be filling today. I'll put it bluntly, it shouldn't take a government banning social media uh, for us to say something needs to change. And I know there are a lot of homes where they are making the changes. ScreenStrong.com is a great resource for that. We're going to talk about what's happening on the pulse with abortion. RU46, that's a chemical abortion, the most common type of abortion today, is in the limelight right now, especially in light of everything surrounding the conversation with whether or not the FDA should have approved back in 2000 very quickly access to so-called medical abortion that is the most common type of abortion today. We'll talk about that a little later, changing opinions on abortion, but also what must change? What must change in order for us to see a pro-life culture again? You're listening to Trending with Timory. Without further ado, Dr. Adriana Stacy, a board-certified psychiatrist. You can find her at FayettevillePsychiatry.com. Dr. Stacy, postpartum depression is a topic you're hearing, I would say, more about than we have in the past. I think many people have had confused understandings of postpartum depression, uh, myself included, kind of having this attitude of, hey, you know, you just need to step, snap out of it, you know, be willing to do what you've got to do for your children. And I think there's a balance. There's a lot to be discussed in postpartum depression and different perspectives on it from the difficulty with bonding to isolation. Uh, but it really struck my interest last year. So especially after I was a year off of having my first daughter myself, when Hayden Pantier, she came out, she's known for many uh, films and shows from Heroes in Nashville to the Scream films, among others. She's out in the latest Scream 6. It's actually in theaters right now. And she's made comments about her experience with postpartum depression. She dated and had a child with Ukrainian boxer Vladimir Klitschko, uh, who blamed Hayden Pantier for her postpartum depression. He said, she said that he really thought that she was doing it to herself and that she was choosing it. She needed to snap out of it. Uh, there's a lot to be said. Hayden ended up having to leave her child due to the postpartum depression and alcoholism uh, for a number of years. And it's brought to light many people who have experienced postpartum depression. What are the signs? What are the solutions? Without further ado to discuss this is Dr. Adriana Stacy. Dr. Stacy, what do we need to make of postpartum depression today? Sure. So postpartum depression, of course, has been around as long as babies have been around, right? So it's nothing new. 
What's new now is that there's a lot more research into it. There's a lot more awareness um, when it comes to obstetricians or family practice doctors or psychiatrists for really trying to diagnose this. So first, let's talk about um, what's normal, right? So what what sort of mood changes after delivery are considered normal? So there's this thing called the baby blues, and this is very common. So this usually starts a couple days after birth, and many women will experience feelings of worry, sometimes unhappiness, feeling very tired. If you've had a baby, you really understand this, right? And so there is this sort of idea, largely because of what we see, um, sort of how things are, um, how they look on social media, that as soon as you have a baby, you should look all put together and you should just be over the moon and everything should be wonderful. And your um, spouse or partner should be amazing and your other children should be, you know, there's this whole sort of idea. But um, what happens right after delivery is there's a sudden change in hormones, right? Mm-hmm. And so what can happen is people can become more emotional. That's not always sad. Sometimes it's crying more when you're happy than you normally would. Now the baby blues usually gets better on its own within a couple of weeks. So that's not postpartum depression. That's completely normal. Postpartum depression is a lot more severe. So it usually starts within the first month after a woman has a baby. And the difference is, is that this interferes with the ability for the mom to do daily life activities. So taking care of herself, taking care of the baby, um, increase in sadness, anxiety, feeling hopeless. Um, Other things that may come along with it is loss of interest in things that she used to enjoy, withdrawing from friends, withdrawing from family. Um, And then when it gets really severe, thoughts of hurting herself or actually thoughts of hurting the baby. Um, And this actually can um, happen up to a year after the baby's born. So sometimes we'll see moms do really well. And then when they start to wean their baby and stop breastfeeding, we'll see um, like a spike in the chance for postpartum depression. And the difference between what I said earlier about baby blues and postpartum depression is that postpartum depression needs treatment. So um, if a woman is is experiencing those feelings to that degree, she really needs to seek treatment. So talk to your OBGYN, talk to your family practice doctor, talk to a family member and get to a psychiatrist if you can, especially one that works with reproductive psychiatry. So women who have recently had um, a baby. These are really good indicators in terms of symptoms. And I appreciate that you mentioned that the baby blues is normal. I don't think I've ever really heard anyone mention that it's normal to have a little bit of blues after you have that baby. And then to distinguish that from something that's actually interfering with your daily life activity. With my first daughter, life kind of changed rapidly. She was two weeks old and my husband received a job offer that moved us across the country to the Midwest. To me, uh, it was weather that was very unfamiliar coming from sunny California. And I went from being totally fine to really struggling. And I do think that, you know, in hindsight, I didn't realize it till later that it was, you know, in a form of postpartum depression, also with mm-hmm. circumstances that led to that isolation that contributes to yes. postpartum depression. And I didn't realize it until after the fact. It took a while to kind of realize, hey, something isn't okay. I'm feeling very, very sad and very 
very unmotivated. And there were different things, and I'll mention a little later, that I worked on um, that were helpful, but it was an uphill battle. And I know there's a lot of attitude, Dr. Stacy, for people to say that postpartum depression is just the mom's fault. She needs to suck it up and move along. I think that there's a balance between understanding the mental health crisis of postpartum depression and the absolute need for moms to fight to take care of themselves to be better when that's a struggle. Can you talk a little bit about that struggle and the input as well as uh, the output as well? Sure. So let's talk a little bit about what we think causes postpartum depression, because I think it would be interesting to your listeners to know this, of course, without getting into too much of it. Now, we don't know exactly, right? Um, There's a lot of theories on it. But what we think is happening is that when you are pregnant, your body volume, your blood volume is significantly increased. Your hormone levels are completely different than they are when you're not pregnant. And so then you have a baby and all of a sudden everything changes. And so we think that some women's brains are particularly sensitive to that change in hormones. So if you're listening to this and you're the type of person who maybe has struggled with what we typically call PMS in the past, or you get sort of very emotional, you know, related to sort of hormone treatments or anything like that, then you would be considered at higher risk for postpartum depression, because we think that it's something to do with the hormone change that's happening. And so it has nothing to do with a mother's choice, right? It has nothing to do with the mother loving her baby or not loving her baby. Now, there are things postpartum that can contribute to a better outcome. So that's better support at home, you know, better resources financially, things that sort of help. But it's really not something that you can necessarily predict in any way. It's Mm -hmm. definitely not the mother's fault. Um, It's definitely not anything to do with the choice that she's making. Um, It really just has to do with something biologic. And for whatever reason, that particular woman's brain is just more sensitive to this. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, it really does require treatment. There are some amazing new treatments out there. Now, there are, of course, pharmacologic treatments, medications that we know work significantly better than other treatments. But if a particular mom is not interested in that, there are non-medication treatments as well that mental health providers can offer that do show some success. And I'm hearing so often from many women who experience postpartum depression and choose a pharmaceutical route, their regret later on uh, and the other side effects that they experience as a result and that it didn't always help them in achieving that wholeness they needed. So I appreciate you mentioned other solutions. I do want to come back to the hormone um, topic that you mentioned. So uh, I've discussed a lot, and I don't know if you're familiar with NAPRO technology, but it really addresses helping to discover what's going on with women's bodies and underlying health concerns. Many women who have endometriosis, PCOS, um, thyroid Mm -hmm. issues, among others, it's helping see what's going on. Let's treat your body and let's help to give the support necessary to your body to, if you're trying to achieve pregnancy, to help achieve pregnancy with your body, right, and helping to achieve Mm -hmm. that function properly. But what's been interesting is you mentioned women who tend to have really bad cramps, intense uh, mm-hmm. menstrual cycles, that they tend to be a little more yes. on the warning side for uh, for postpartum depression. Well, I know with some of the NAPRO technology, they've had a lot of success with treating postpartum depression with progesterone, that often women yes. who are experiencing um, issues with cramping and severe, um, and severe menstrual cycles, that they often have low progesterone. This is what I had. And so I didn't think that progesterone would be an issue 
issue and we tested progesterone and then circumstances change and then hormones fluctuate again at six weeks and later. So I know that progesterone support has been really helpful and our NAPRO physicians have been helpful with that. So I'll post a link to find a NAPRO physician near you because I think that's really interesting. And I have a question with regard to hormones, Dr. Stacey. I was reading, I think it was Reese Witherspoon's story, the actress recently, and she struggled with postpartum depression with her first child. And she mentioned something about struggling after she stopped nursing and that she had no idea that with weaning the baby that hormones would shift again. Is that true? Do hormones shift a lot after weaning a baby and can that lead to postpartum depression later? Oh, absolutely. So if you talk to enough moms, um, they'll tell you that they did not have a menstrual cycle at all while they were nursing. And so then Mm -hmm. when they stopped nursing or maybe the baby was only nursing once a day, then they started to notice that their menstrual cycles returned. And so that is the change in the hormone levels. Now, if you have a situation um, or make that decision to like stop nursing the baby, sort of cold turkey, as we say, like just one day stop, the change in the hormones is going to be more significant, right? Because it's a sudden stop and a sudden Mm. change, but absolutely. So women, if you talk to enough women, they'll talk about all kinds of things that they've noticed when they're nursing versus when they're not nursing. And um, it's interesting that you said that about the hormones because, um, you know, women who have difficulty getting pregnant are at a higher risk for postpartum depression, which you would think socially it'd be the other way around, right? So like if you had a hard time getting pregnant and then you finally had a baby, you would be overjoyed. But that is more evidence against this that we were talking about that it's, quote, the mother's fault, right? Right. But what we think about people that have trouble getting pregnant, it's likely a hormonal situation, right? There's Mm -hmm. some issue with progesterone or estrogen or a testosterone issue or some other thing. So, um, so that is one of the risk factors for postpartum depression. And Dr. Stacey, with how common uh, infertility is today or delayed fertility, I think this is something that really has to be talked about. I mean, we're nuking our bodies with hormonal contraception today, completely altering the chemical wake-up of our bodies. And we want to get pregnant. We can't because the natural balance of hormones necessary for making a baby and supporting a pregnancy aren't there. And then you add the fact that we are then seeing another fluctuation when pregnancy does occur. There are all these fluctuations in hormones today both artificially and via just struggles in general with fertility, that we should be, I think, more alert to the crisis of postpartum depression that many, many women are experiencing. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about solutions. So you mentioned no medication solutions. Um, We talked about progesterone support. Um, I'll post the links to NAPRO physicians who help with uh, giving that support. What does therapy look like for someone who's going through postpartum depression and they've maybe not taken a step yet for that type of support? Sure. So the first thing I would say is that if you think that you have postpartum depression or you're feeling these feelings of intense sadness or not wanting to do things that you used to enjoy, I would say um, there is a rating scale that you can do and you can find it online. It's called the Edinburgh scale or the Edinburgh postnatal postnatal, sorry, depression scale, EPDS. Go online and do that and answer the questions. And if you score a nine or more, you need to contact your doctor because that's sort of what we think is the cutoff for what's considered sort of normal in that stage of life and what's not. Now, some non-medication treatments are going to be 
the same type of treatments that we would use for depression that's not postpartum. Mm -hmm. So therapy, of course, is an excellent treatment. There's all different types of therapy. There's all different types of therapists, sort of depending on what state you live in. There's different credentials. Um, but starting with therapy is a great, a great idea. And there are therapists that you can find that are specific to postpartum depression. Um, but when we treat postpartum depression, it's the same treatment that we use to treat depression that's not postpartum. So there's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's supportive therapy, there's psychodynamic psychotherapy. So a lot of different types of, of therapy. And I would like to mention as well that we know that exercise, daily exercise yes. is an amazing treatment for depression. Now that's easier said than done because you have a newborn and you're feeling no motivation. And so to get outside and exercise every day is, you know, hard to do, <laughs> but I would say get a baby carrier, a baby Bjorn mm -hmm. or a wrap of some sort, put the baby on, go for a walk, tell yourself today, I'm going to do five minutes. If I can do five mm -hmm. minutes and I'm going to be happy with that tomorrow, I'm going to do six minutes. You know I mean? Just sort of start slow and any exercise that we can do is, is significantly um, helpful for treating depression. I'm glad you mentioned baby carriers too, because there's a lot of research that has come out more recently focusing on the fact that historically women have been more apt to wear their babies in the past. And this has helped in part with postpartum depression of that bonding and that connection, the oxytocin, um, those things that are released when you're holding your baby and that we kind of live in a culture that, you know, the stroller culture, the sleep training culture, which are all great things and resources, but they're tools. They're not the way alone to live, I think, with our children. And that disconnect from babies has really had a negative impact uh, for many women today, which I is why I really do believe this is a pro-life topic, why many women are struggling to not want to have children or have more children because of the influence of postpartum depression. You mentioned earlier um, some of the solutions in talk therapy. We talked about progesterone. I know I shared that I ended up struggling not initially with postpartum depression, but after we moved, I was feeling really tired, unmotivated, and very, very sorrowful, among other things. I had mentioned at one point a while back for those who have been with me that, you know, even just these thoughts, there was a time where I didn't desire ever to hurt my child, but I just thought I could drop my baby on the floor and this would really hurt the baby. Or, you know, all these different things that could happen that would be dangerous for the child. And I think on one side, Dr. Stacy, my head was thinking, oh, I need to be aware of these things to protect my child. But on the other end of the spectrum, I would kind of dwell on them so significantly that I think it was a part of that postpartum depression kind of orienting toward fear of it happening. Happening, but even just I would get scared of the thought even coming into my head, not that I wanted to do it, but that it was even there and present. And so for me, some of what helped was, like you mentioned, exercise, working on sleep at a time when sleep is so difficult with a young child. I really had to cut out sugar and uh, make sure that my diet was clean because sugar just contributed to lack of motivation and exhaustion, even sorrow at times. And talking to my spouse as well, my husband was really helpful as well. Dr. Stacy, this is such an important topic. I know that you at Fayetteville Psychiatry work a lot with postpartum depression, so we'll post the link to your website if anyone is in the area. We'll also reference catholictherapist.com uh, to help find therapists who honor, you know, your faith perspective as well. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. We're posting links to all of these topics, including a link to how to be present and bond with your child, an episode I did a little while back with Eric Komazar. Coming up at Dr. 
Adriana Stacy, a board-certified psychiatrist, will talk to us about social media and the crackdown we're seeing in the states from TikTok being sued to Utah banning social media. What is her take as a psychiatrist? We'll be right back. listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I'm fascinated by what's happening with regard to the crackdown on social media. There have been lawsuits filed against TikTok and Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook. Utah's even gone so far as to ban minors using social media, uh, requiring age verification, parental consent, and actually an outright ban on social media use between certain hours of the day. I think somewhere around like 6.30, 10.30 at night. Uh, it's really important to see. Yeah, 6.30 at night and sorry, 10.30 at night and 6.30 in the morning uh, for kids under the age of 18. They aren't even allowed to use it during those hours. A uh, lot's being asked about whether or not this can actually be regulated. I think we're in uncharted new waters as we implement this. But I'm fascinated, Dr. Stacy, to get your take on this. You're a psychiatrist. You work in particular with ScreenStrong.com. You're actually their medical advisor. Can you share with me your thoughts on the latest trends of the government stepping in with regard to social media use and its impact on children? Sure. So this is a huge part of my passion as a physician is trying to really fight against what um, handheld, you know, devices are doing to our children's mental health. And so the sad part to me is that us as parents should be making these rules for our children. Um, but I think what happens is we don't, you know, the, the general public, so the average mom or dad doesn't have all the information and that's done by design. And so what's happening is because the parents aren't stopping their children from getting on these platforms and using these devices in a way that's harmful, the government is having to step in. And so we're seeing this more and more and more every day. So personally, I live in Arkansas and Arkansas has recently filed a lawsuit against TikTok and Meta, which is sort of the parent company for Facebook, um, and they're suing them over child safety claims. And so they're saying, which I agree with, that these platforms are harmful to the safety of children. And I absolutely 100% agree with that. Um, so I see a lot of kids, teenagers, college students in my clinical practice, and I've yet to see and evaluate and treat a kid or a teenager that does not have an issue with social media. It's just a problem across the board. That's really and, significant what you just said. You mm -hmm. have not treated a single minor without some issue with social media. That is a, psych not a single one, a psycho no. psychological problem with social media. You're yes. saying, yes. Wow. And there are, there are engineers that are hired by these companies to make this technology addictive. And so they do it on purpose. And so there's algorithms that they use. There's way they, they get your kids drawn in. I mean, adults too, but kids' brains are just a lot more reactive than adult brains. And so they can get addicted to things a lot faster. And so it's really become a safety issue, a mental health concern. Um, I mean, the ABCD study out of the NIH is showing that 
It's shrinking kids' brains, Timory, like mm. making the cortex of their brain smaller um, wow. using social media um, more than two and a half hours a day. So we really have to crack down on this as parents. And if we don't feel like we can because of outside forces, then the government's going to have to step in. And so this is what you see has been is happening in Utah. And so they have passed this new social media law. Um, now, the question with this particular law is how it's going to be enforced. And so there's, right. it's going to take some time to figure out how to enforce this law. But it was two different bills that were signed in the law that prohibit kids who are under 18 from using social media between 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. And that also requires age verification for anyone who wants to use social media in the state. And if they're under age, then their parents have to agree to it. Now, a lot of parents will just agree to it because they just say this is what kids do now. But I really challenge parents to think twice about it and really get out there and look at the research. And like you said, I'm the medical advisor for Screen Strong. And I do that because I really believe in this organization's mission. There's some amazing information out there for parents and educators to really help kids understand why we don't want them on this technology. And I want to talk about some of those parameters you recommend for limiting technology and technology use in the home. But before you do, we go there, I think you mentioned a couple really important things. Number one, the government is stepping in because of how negatively this is impacting children. But it's the primary responsibility of parents to help regulate a child's life. And it's a problem when, one, we like you said, some parents don't have the information. But, two, I think a lot of parents say, this is what all the kids are doing. I don't want my child to be alienated. Or I'd rather, quote, my child to be home and entertained than out on the streets doing something I otherwise wouldn't like them doing. But we know the stories that these kids are going all the way to the point of self-harm and suicide, living ideology so far removed from their family of origin. I mean, kids who know better, Dr. Stacy, who are doing things in life that just don't make sense. And I truly believe it's because of the influence of influencers on social media, normalizing lifestyles adverse to what a parent may want their child to live. You know, you can protect your child from what friends they are associating with. You can put them in a good school, but that doesn't protect them from the louder noise and influence of social media. So you work with ScreenStrong.com, which we love. Melanie Hempy from ScreenStrong.com has been here. I'll post a link to some of her episodes uh, that she has done with us here on Trending. Let's talk about what rules and parameters parents need to start enforcing within their homes for children and technology. Sure. So I'll give you um, my recommendations for technology use. And these are, of course, my recommendations, but based on what the science is showing us. So based on what current research says, um, no child under the age of 13 should have any sort of internet-enabled device. So that's not, no tablets, no smartwatches, no smartphones, any sort of internet-enabled device. Um, at age 13, I would consider, if necessary, something like a Gab watch. And so this is a type of watch that allows limited texting and calling. So this gives the kid the opportunity to get in touch with their parent if they're at a sports practice or they're doing something where they need to be in touch with someone else. Um, and then around age 16, you can sort of, you know, reconsider about do they need a phone? So my recommendation is a Gab phone. The Gab phone calls, it texts, it um, has a 
clean music app. They've recently introduced a maps function on there. And that's pretty much all that kids need. What happens is if you allow these smartphones is even if they're not on social media, these apps on the phone become more and more addictive. So like I had a kid that was addicted to the American Airlines app and going on there and like checking flight times, which you would never think would what be something that a kid was interested <laughs> in doing. But they're they're the dopamine system in their brain is just seeking out all this electronic interaction. And so it's fascinating what kids would be addicted to. Now, once your child is 18, you know, that's when really you can consider, okay, what does it look like for this kid to get a smartphone? And so when I was by a smartphone, I'm talking about internet enabled phones. So that's what you typically think of like an iPhone that has all of these apps. You know, a lot of parents say, well, won't my kid be left out or won't they be behind and not know how to use the technology? And I love to tell the story of my 90 year old grandfather because he lived in a small town and they stopped publishing the local newspaper. And so when they did that, they came around and gave everybody an iPad so that they could read the newspaper on their iPad. And so they brought my grandfather this iPad that he had never used at 90 years old. And within two hours, he knew how to use it. And so I don't buy into the idea that we have to teach him how to use it when they're <laughs> 10 or eight, you know, right. I mean, because if he's 90 and he can learn how to use it, I think anyone can. Um, and like I said before, the engineers that make these apps and devices make them very intuitive. And so there's not really that need to do that. Now, the question becomes, will they be left out? Absolutely. But you know what? They're going to be left out of way more bad things or sort of traumatizing things than they would be like birthday parties and other things like that. So um, so we, you know, like I have told my patients and I tell people through Screen Strong, my oldest child is almost 17. She's never had a smartphone. She's doing completely fine um, and is able to navigate, you know, teenage life without it. And we're very proud of her for that. But um, some interesting things to note is that the CDC recently came out with a report about mental health, um, especially among teenage girls, and found that nearly 30 yes. percent of teenage girls, one in three seriously considered attempting suicide. Thirty mm-hmm. percent of our teenage girls. Yes. Even more scary is that one in five experienced sexual violence in the past year. And this is up 27% since the CDC began monitoring this measure. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I think these things are related to phone use. So we're seeing this significant increase in the harmful content that girls and boys are seeing through social media and through internet enabled devices. And I think by removing these things from our kids' hands, it's going to make a huge difference in their mental health. I 100% agree. I saw those statistics, which no one is talking about. I talked about them with Melanie Hempy from ScreenStrong.com a few weeks back, and it's really stood out to me, especially the sexual violence. One in five girls have experienced some form of sexual violence. We did an episode to talk about two girls, especially for men to talk to girls, about being safe and creating healthy relationships with regard to other people, especially boys and men. That's frightening because I think that social media and not just social media, but even the movies for years since sexual revolution, Dr. Stacey has romanticized this idea of meeting someone and meeting someone just a little bit older and, you know, having that person that it has so deeply impacted the way girls view themselves to be perpetually hot and available and how they seek out those relationships 
desperately, not just hormonally, because it's natural to seek out those relationships from the impact of our hormones, right? And the way our brains are wired, but for us to desperately seek those relationships out to the point of self-harm and allowing others to harm ourselves as well. And I think that that's what's so frightening and what is seen in these statistics that one in three girls are considering attempting suicide and one in five are experiencing sexual violence. That's why your guidelines for how to engage with technology and social media is significant. So from what you're saying, you're just giving guidelines for when to introduce internet devices, but you're not saying anything about actually using social media. So is it an absolute no with regard to social media for kids? In my opinion, yes. In my medical opinion, I don't think anybody under 18 should be on social media. So we know that the brain doesn't fully develop until around age 25, a little bit earlier for women, a little bit later for men, but that's kind of the average. So, you know, it's hard to say you're going to keep somebody off social media till they're 25. And even some mm-hmm. adults get on social media and have problems with that. But the longer you can wait to allow your child to get on social media, the better that will be for their mental health. Um, and so I tell my patients, I tell their parents, I tell my own children, no social media until you graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that that is a great way to sort of keep them as mentally strong as you can. And what that helps them to learn is that they don't need it. They can survive without it. And hopefully that they will have better self-control when the time comes. But at least that they will understand social media, as you mentioned earlier, is specifically designed by their creators to hire people who are addiction specialists and how to create addictive patterns, whether it's with the click-through that we keep watching on Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, or to continue to trace down that video, whatever it might be on Instagram or TikTok. These are all really, I think, significant guidelines. I hope parents will heed this advice. You mentioned you have children who don't have social media and don't have phones. And I hear from parents all the time who say, thank you for talking about this. No one else is talking about it. And my kid is a teenager doing fantastic, has a great social life, no mental health crises, and they do not have social media or phones. So I think that speaks volumes. If your kid is struggling, you need to check out ScreenStrong.com. That's ScreenStrong.com. I'll post a link on social media as well as in the episode notes where we've also tagged Dr. Stacy. Uh, she is the partner and medical advisor at ScreenStrong.com, helping to keep our kids safe and take them back from the digital age that's leading to this severe abuse of children today. Again, that's a doctor. Dr. Stacy, you can find her as well at Fayetteville Psychiatry. We'll post a link on social media. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Stacy. I'll be right back talking about abortion, what's happening potentially coming up to the Supreme Court are over chemical, so-called medical abortion, limited access, the courts weighing in, and what needs to change if we're going to decrease abortion numbers and completely get rid of abortion in this country. Listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888 914 9149. 
what needs to change to make abortion unthinkable. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Before we go there, I want to talk about the latest news surrounding abortion and access to the abortion pill. I'm not talking about Plan B. Plan B can cause an abortion. Uh, we're talking about Mifepristone. That is the RU486 chemical abortion pill. It's been in the news a lot recently after a Texas court actually decided to address the fact that back in 2000, the FDA approved the abortion drug for access on the market and did it rapidly without doing proper testing or acknowledging major health concerns. So, 23 years later, it's being addressed. Now, a court in Texas last week, just before Easter, actually addressed this, acknowledging that this shouldn't be on on the market right now, and we need to address the rapid approval back in 2000. More could be said there, but here's what's happened. Immediately, the Biden administration, led by President Biden, who claims to be Catholic, uh, he insisted he insisted, he and his administration, that this couldn't be the status quo, and they immediately appealed the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has temporarily blocked this Texas-based federal judge's ruling that was suspending the 2000 approval of mifepristone in the RU-46 chemical abortion process. Now, again, President Biden's administration immediately appealed this, and the Fifth Circuit Court has decided that mifepristone needs to continue to be allowed to be accessible, but not in all circumstances. It's a temporary block, and essentially what we've already heard from President Biden's administration is that he is taking this to the Supreme Court. So, drumroll, the Supreme Court of the United States of America, I believe, will, will be hearing another case on abortion in 2024, and it will be a landmark case. I don't think that they can punt this case, and I don't think you have judges on the court who are willing to just punt the safety of women's health with an outrageous chemical abortion, which makes up more than 50% of all abortions in the United States today, so-called medical abortions. It's a chemical abortion, set of two pills a woman takes one, used to be in in the medical, so-called medical facility, the abortion clinic, where they murder babies, and then the other one she takes at home. I have been alongside women who have taken the RU486 abortion pill after regretting it. I worked, as you may know, for nearly six years in the crisis pregnancy systems. I've stood in front of the abortion clinic with women who are at the point who have already made this decision. Now, if you know someone who's taken the RU-486 abortion pill, it is not too late to change their mind. There is the abortionpillreversal.com program where you can get in touch with a medical physician who can help stop the medical chemical abortion process in the woman's body and save that baby's life. Thousands of babies have been saved by this. Totally healthy babies from women who otherwise regretted their so-called choice for abortion, when the truth of the matter is they thought they had no choice. And I can tell you on average how often we would see these women in the crisis pregnancy centers who would choose to have an abortion because, let's say, the boyfriend or the husband was insistent about it. Time and time again, on average, within three weeks, that relationship would be over and that woman would be 
a mother without a child, and without the relationship she was trying to save. And that woman thought she had no choice. She thought that she had to choose an abortion. The reality is, is that abortion is no choice for a woman. And the fact that the president, President Biden's administration, is insisting that there be access to RU-46 chemical abortion, it's outrageous. It's not pro-woman. It's not pro-healthy health care. But you know what? They should be careful what they ask for, because I do believe, as I said earlier, in 2024, the Supreme Court will hear the abortion case on chemical abortion and how it was outrageously and dangerously and not properly approved back in 2000, 23 years later. Why are we having to go back 23 years later and visit this? Because the reality is, is that abortion has always been this thing that we approve in our culture without any question with regard to the health and safety of women. Yet this is what people in the pro-life movement care about, women and their safety. Not only the baby that is murdered, but the fact that abortion hurts a woman. And we need to talk about that. So as this story is in the news, this is your opportunity to bring up these conversations. So many women are hurt by abortion. On Monday here on Trending, we're going to talk about changing abortion opinions. How Abortion has a lot to do with our culture's happiness today, our decrease in happiness, and how RU-46 abortion, chemical abortions, do even further harm to women than the surgical abortions. We'll talk about that again Monday here on Trending during our weekly happy hour. Why during a happy hour? Because abortion really has impacted the happiness of women today, and we need to talk about it. But let's talk about some interesting things that happened in this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruling on what the Texas uh, ban originally had to do with RU-46 chemical abortion. So basically, the Fifth Circuit said, yes, there will continue to be access to chemical abortion. However, they're putting limitations on it. For example, you can only use it up to six weeks rather than the FDA who had just expanded access to mifepristone all the way up to 10 weeks. So that is one step. So four weeks uh, back in terms of access. And sorry, actually, I misspoke. Seven weeks back to, to access. So a woman can use that up to seven weeks gestation. And the reality is, is that many women on average still find out they're pregnant right around six weeks. So that's three weeks sooner that there's a ban on access after the FDA on its own, on a whim, basically decided to get greater access to the chemical abortion pill. This has been a huge attempt of the pro-abortion movement to increase abortion numbers, even in the face of overturning Roe versus Wade. Now, another thing that happened is that uh, there has been efforts by the government, the FDA, to authorize pharmacies to dispense RU-46 chemical abortions, mifepristone. Well, guess what? The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said no. We are not allowing retail pharmacies to dispense this. It's also that they've said no to giving via telemedicine or via any type of phone, non-person visit access to abortion. So basically, you have to go in person as it was before to have access given to RU-46 abortion for that to be prescribed. So no telemedicine, you have to go in person. This is significant because Planned Parenthood's entire system over the last really five to 10 years has been building out a platform 
to do telemedicine very quickly to give access to abortion. But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal is saying, no, you have to have a physician and you need to have an in-person visit versus the FDA, along with the government, has deregulated that and was allowing for telemedicine and even, get this, wasn't even requiring a physician to oversee that abortion, chemical abortion process. Now, here's the other thing. There was a deregulation. Again, we talked earlier this year and last year about REMS and how during COVID, basically the regulations on the chemical abortion pill were thrown out. One of those requirements in terms of regulating it also had to do with reporting non-fatal events. Basically, any events, adverse events and effects of the chemical abortion pill weren't being reported. Now, that is thrown out. Those required reports are there again. Unfortunately, the greater pro-abortion movement still chooses not to report, but at least where there is a requirement, some will indeed be reported. We actually have better data coming out of Europe with regard to the impact of chemical abortion. They too have increased over the last couple of years and during COVID access to the chemical abortion pill. But what they've shown, unlike the United States, is a major spike in women who are having adverse and even fatal encounters after having taken RU-486 abortion pill. A huge spike in the number of women coming into the emergency room. So this is what we have to talk about. The United States may not be reporting the true data on abortion and its impact on women, but we can look to other countries and we can also acknowledge what we see on the ground. And that is that women are suffering due to the absolutely outrageous deregulation by the medical community itself and the government to meet basic medical health standards for drugs such as mifepristone. But they failed the American public and they failed women back in 23 years ago in 2000 when they rapidly gave access to this chemical abortion that is the most common type of abortion today that is so damaging for women in their bodies. I mean, we're talking about women developing blood clotting, autoimmune diseases, uh, developing subsequent uh, ectopic pregnancies. Women whose babies are growing in the fallopian tube, therefore being an ectopic pregnancy, and those aren't being diagnosed or caught. And women are dying from them because they're taking RU-46 chemical abortions at a time when that's not safe or healthy for these babies or for these women. And so this is something that must be cracked down upon and discussed. But We've been talking about what's going to happen. I think this is an important shift in the conversation that we need to make. What needs to change to make abortion unthinkable? Well, we've talked about that more recently here on Trending. For example, earlier on the show, if you weren't with us, we talked about postpartum depression and how postpartum depression is leading women to not have children or not have more children and to have abortions. The difficulty to bond with a child. How do you bond with your child when that's difficult? How do you spend time with your child? These are all links to episodes I'm going to post in today's episode notes because they're important things we need to address to build up a culture of life. But here's where it needs to start. If we continue to have the promiscuous sexual society we have today, where we say that sex doesn't matter, the body doesn't matter, abortion will continue to happen. So what do we need to stand for? The fact that sex belongs in marriage, that sex is a gift, and children are a gift of that sexual love. It's something we need to celebrate, mark, acknowledge, and build up. That's what needs to change with regard to abortion and making it unthinkable. Here's the deal. 
child has a right to be born and a right to their biological mother and father. Those need to be fundamental ideas in our culture again. But it goes back to what we believe about sexual intimacy, that it belongs in marriage and that children are a gift of that love between a man and a woman and ideally a husband and a wife. And your kids, I hope if you have children, I hope your kids know that in the event they do make a mistake and a baby comes outside of marriage, that you will be there to help them and support them through navigating those difficult circumstances. Because you can't change the circumstances. You can kill a baby, but you can't change circumstances. And I can't tell you how often, especially working in the crisis pregnancy centers, standing in front of the abortion clinic, counseling women, how often teenagers and 20-something-year-old women seek out an abortion because they're terrified to tell their very Catholic parents. Or sometimes the very Catholic parents are embarrassed. They don't want people to think that their child was the kid that had a baby out of wedlock, got knocked up. And so they actually, even out of a surprise to themselves, encourage having an abortion. I can think of two sisters off the top of my head right now who came from a very strong Catholic family who said they were pro-life. But when both the sisters told their parents they were pregnant... At different times, the parents actually encouraged an abortion. Those girls ended up in the crisis pregnancy center, seeking counseling, not knowing what to do. And it had really to take the support of the crisis pregnancy centers, counselors, helping the parents navigate the shame that they thought they felt because their daughters were pregnant outside of marriage, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier, social media influence. A lot of people who we think know better who do know better, should know better. Even with knowing better the influence of social media and the culture we live in, many people come out scathed, not unscathed. And so we have to be willing to face the mistakes that people will still make, but do it in a pro-life way, even if it's, again, in less than ideal circumstances. I mentioned again that a child has a right to be born. That needs to be fundamental in our minds and the minds of others and that that child has a right to their biological mother and father. I think it's also important when we're talking about this that we talk about the fact that a child has a right to be properly cared for and raised by his or her parents. That the child shouldn't just be expected to always adapt to parents, but parents that we adapt to children. This means helping moms when they have a hard time bonding with their children. Helping to respect and protect those cherished years and time at home with children, raising them, forming their character, regulating their environment, protecting them from harmful social medias and other things we've talked about today on Trending. It also means we need to equip moms with the resources necessary to overcome postpartum depression, such as we discussed earlier, and equip, expect, and encourage men to provide for their families so women are available to meet the needs of their children and not make women think that they have to do it all and help men to see the important and fundamental role they play as leaders, protectors, providers, fathers within the family. These are things that must change and shift with regard to our attitude in order to make abortion unthinkable. We have a lot of work to do, but that's why you and I are talking about it, because these are conversations we can have. And when we fail in society or we fail individually, we can build back up these fundamental ideas to respect and protect the gift of children, the gift of motherhood, the gift of fathers, and encourage that 
even in the face of the current culture we live in. It's time to be countercultural, and that's to be pro-life today. We'll talk more about this on Monday during our weekly happy hour, how abortion has impacted our society and what needs to change.